0: The Church is the Bride of Christ, and one of the seven churches of Revelation exemplified that more than any other. And we're going to talk about that church on this week's episode of Revelation Unveiled on Faith by Reason. Welcome to Faith by Reason. The website behind it all is faithbyreason.net. There you will find hundreds of hours of study material, blogs, podcasts, and video. And we are continuing our study of the book of Revelation, looking at these seven letters to seven churches. This week, looking at the church at Philadelphia. And up until this point, the churches had been looking pretty bleak the last few churches. You had the church at Pergamum, the church that compromised and basically married the world. You had the church at Thyatira, which allowed idolatry to come in. They were basically turning the church into a pagan system of worship. Then you had the church at Sardis, which was basically spiritually dead. So looking pretty bleak. Fortunately, we have the church of Philadelphia, that shining example of what a church should be. And let's just start by diving into the verses. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write: These are the words of him that is holy and true. He who has the key of David who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one's opens. No one opens. I know your works. See, I've set before you an open door and no one can shut it for you have a little strength Okay, I think as we can see right off the bat, this letter is just full of effusive praise for this church. In fact, this praise even has a very strong marital marriage uh, concept to it, which we'll talk about in a few minutes. But before we uh, break down this verse, let's, as usual, look at the historic concept because again, these were seven actual churches in seven real cities in Asia Minor, ancient Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. And Philadelphia was a city in um, in, in ancient Asia Minor. Um, not as prominent as some of the other cities. It wasn't a big hustling metropolis like Ephesus or Smyrna. It wasn't um, a blue-collar town like Thyatira or anything like that. It was actually just a farming community. Nothing fancy about it at all. These were just farmers. The name Philadelphia, which means brotherly love, comes from the fact that this the land that became the city of Philadelphia was um, gifted from one uh, Greek leader to his brother, so hence the name. And again, it's, it's a farming community to this day. That area in Turkey is known for growing grapes for raisins. And that's about it for, for Philadelphia. It is interesting that this um, area, this city that was just humble, salt of the earth, just regular, hardworking people, humble people would be the church that um, exemplifies what Jesus wants most of all. Because while there was nothing uh, fancy or notable about them in any way materially, or, or they were giants spiritually. So while you would not have noticed them or pay much attention to them while they were on Earth, because we, we only look at the physical, from a spiritual standpoint, they were absolutely magnificent. Humble, again, salt to the earth, regular folk who were just doing the work of Jesus. All right, so let's now um, dive into the verses and break it down. Okay, verse seven. Of chapter 3. And to the angel in the church of Philadelphia, the angel or the messenger, the angelos of the church of Philadelphia, write These things say he who is holy and who is true. Now, as usual, uh, Jesus gives a title of himself, who's, one who is holy and true. Holiness means oneness, holiness means of a single type. So he is saying that he is holy and true, means that he is just pure and he is who he says he is. Continuing, he who has the key of David who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. What does a key of David mean? Well, the, David was of course the king, the most famous king of Israel. And if you had the key of the king, that is something that was ceremonially be bestowed upon a person who, who would represent the king. Having the key of the king meant, meant that you had all the power of the king. So the person who was known as the key bearer would, wear a very large, unusually large ornate key around his neck so that people, people saw him, they would know, okay, this is the key bearer of the king. This person has all the authority of the king. Now, in this case, Jesus has the key of David, David, who was the ultimate king of, of Israel. Jesus is basically saying he's walking in the authority of that king and he who opens and no one shuts and shuts. No one opens. I think that's again a play on the term of having the key. And what is he opening and shedding that no one can shut? Uh, I think we're gonna find out more about that when we get to chapter four, but I, I believe it's the door to heaven. So he's opened the door to heaven. We'll, talk, we'll see that in, in a couple of verses. Verse eight, I know your works. Again, Jesus says this in every single letter. He knows their works. See, I have set before you an open door. There, there's that door again, and no one can shut it. So he's emphasizing here twice in two verses that whatever this open door is, it is, it's, it's something that no one else can, can, can shut. It's something that Philadelphia has exclusive rights to. He's letting them in to someplace. And I and I believe again, that someplace is heaven for, you have a little strength, have kept my word and have not denied my name. So this is the reason that this open door to heaven, to Jesus, Jesus, home is open to them because they, despite not being a great city, they've kept his word. They've not, and not denied his name. They've remained faithful verse nine. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and know that I have loved you. Okay. We talked about these guys before at the church of Smyrna. These uh, people who say they are Jews are not Jews, but are actually the synagogue of Satan. They are worshiping Satan under the guise of Judaism. We talked about them a little bit in in Smyrna and because they've been mentioned twice. Twice So far in these letters, I think it's really important that we get an idea of who these people are, not just in this historic sense, because I believe it's historically these are the Edomites again to go back to the, the, um, the letter of Smyrna, that particular teaching to uh, get more information about who the Edomites are. But um, as we say, these letters have different levels of application. One of them being prophetic, where these churches lay out the history of the church in advance. So that means that whoever these these um, synagogue of Satan people are, they have been plaguing the church for a long time, so we should have some idea of who they are on a contemporary basis, and for that, I'm going to spend the next podcast talking about who these Jews who say they're Jews or are not, but are a synagogue of, of Satan. I'm going, we're going to talk about who they actually might be, so it'll be interesting and controversial, so stay tuned for that. And it says that he will have them worship before Maybe we have these, these people worship before their feet and know that Jesus has loved them. So, again, these Jews who say they aren't Jews and are persecuting the church of Philadelphia, apparently doing it under the guise of believing that they're the uh, proper people to receive, to be um, inherit what Jesus is offering to Philadelphians. Jesus is going to say he's going to make them bow down and worship before the Philadelphia church. So apparently these Jews are having the church of Philadelphia sort of bow down and worship them or be under them. And Jesus is going to turn that all around. Verse 10, because you have kept my command to persevere, I will also keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Well, this is an amazing promise because he is saying that because of what they've done, because of their faithfulness, he is going to keep them from the hour of trial that period of time. And I'm getting a little ahead of myself. I'm going towards the, the prophetic point of view here, but he, I believe is talking about the period of time we call the tribulation. He said, he's going to keep them prophetically out of away from the hour of trial Now that word um it says i keep you keep you from the hour of trial that word that's translated keep you from is a greek word ek ek that doesn't mean he's going to you know keep them safe from it it says he will keep it means you're going to keep him out of there he's going to be they're going to be separated they're going to be physically removed from the hour of trial ek means out of not not to be persevered not to persevere through not to be hidden not to be protected but to be physically out of this time. And I think this is going to have a lot to do with the rapture, which we'll talk about. Oh, and the three or four, maybe even five more um, episodes from now. We'll see when we get there. 11. Behold, I come quickly. Hold fast to what you have that no one may take your crown. So that term quickly means suddenly. It doesn't mean that he's going to come in, in a certain period of time. And this is one of the verses that preterists used to justify their belief that Jesus came in the first century Not, not true at all. We talked about preterism in the second episode. You can go back there and check it out. But he's saying he's going to be coming on them suddenly. They won't, they won't be prepared But whenever he comes to uh, take them to keep them from that hour, to take them out of that hour of trial, it's going to be quick and he's going to take them away. And he said to hold fast to what you have. Hold fast means hold it tight to what they have. And what they have is that faithfulness and that the good work they're doing for Jesus, that no one may take your crown. Now, what is a crown here? That word crown is the Greek word Stephanos, which is if you've seen in the past, in I'm sorry, in the past in, in um, photographs of <laughs> sorry pictures. There were no photographs back then. Pictures of the ancient Greek and Roman world. You would see them have this um, this wreath of laurel leaves around their head that they would get as an award for usually for athletic triumphs and things like that. So it's not a, a gold uh, royal crown. It's a crown of reward. So when he says, when Jesus says no one may take your crown it basically means no one may take your reward. So some have interpreted this to mean having your crown taken means you're going to lose your salvation. No, that's not what this word means. That word specifically designates reward. So he's saying Jesus is saying hope continue to persevere in your faithfulness so that no one can take your reward from you. So just hold fast, hold steady, hang in there. And when he comes suddenly to take this church, out of the tribulation out of the, the trial coming upon the earth they'll still have their reward with them 12. he who overcomes i will make him a pillar in the temple of my god and he shall go out no more um pillars in the temple of god obviously means a pillar or something that holds it up so they're going to be the the foundation the thing that holds up the temple of god and it's also interesting that that word pillar yeah, gives um, stability um, there's something I forgot to mention about the city of Philadelphia it was actually known for their earthquakes they had quite a few um, earthquakes apparently there were a lot of fault lines underneath that city so there was always a lot of shaking but a pillar is what keeps um, all that shaking from from bringing down the home or bringing down any structure so he's going to so I think it's a play on words here Jesus said he'll make them a pillar in the temple of God and, they, and he shall go out no more in other words and it also means it's permanent a pillar is something that's permanent so they will permanently be in the temple of God and here's some interesting stuff in the next sentence. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which will come down from heaven from my God, the city of Jerusalem. If when you get to the new Jerusalem and towards the end of the book, you'll see that it is referred to as a bride and Jesus said, he's going to write the name of his father on him. So so the church of Philadelphia is going to get his father's name and they're going to be adorned like a bride. Jesus is basically proposing to this church. He is saying that I will make you my bride. I will put my father's name, the family name. You know, when you get married, you, if you're you know, a male, you give your, your family name to your wife. If you're the wife, you take the family name. That's what Jesus is saying. I'm going to give you my family name. And you're going to be like this bride, the new Jerusalem, which was adorned like a bride coming down from heaven. Those are the same words used at the end of the book. The, the new Jerusalem is presented as a bride coming down from heaven. And I will write on him my new name. So again, he's emphasizing again, we're, we, if you're a part of the Church of Philadelphia, you are going to get the family name of God upon you. you're going to get the family name of Jesus on you, you will be the bride. Jesus right here is proposing to this church this church is his true bride. So that should be the type of church, the type of people that we all aspire to be. Be faithful to him, to don't do, keep his word, keep, his, keep the doctrine, keep the word of, the, of God with you. Do not deny his name and again, That's what if you do those things, if you if you um, promote the name of Jesus, not your name, his name. If you put his name first and you keep the word of the Bible, all of the word from Genesis all the way to Revelation, that's everything in there is what you need to be a the kind of Christian, the kind of bride that God that Jesus wants. You will be his bride. So I think that's spectacular. And he will keep you from this time of trouble, which, again, we'll talk about when we get to um, the rapture as part of the of chapter four right it ends he who has an ear let him hear what the spirit says to the churches okay so as far as the uh, personal application and the congregational church level application uh, is, is pretty much a lot of what i just said a few minutes ago uh, we all aspire to be that faithful church i think we want to be this church that is is, is the bride that jesus proposes to and in order to do that again we have to remain faithful to who he is to jesus is true mission and message. And I've done uh, quite a few uh, uh, blogs and podcasts on the true mission and message of Jesus. I will put show notes, I'll put put the links, excuse me, in the uh, show notes below so that you um, can can study that on your own exactly what that means. But there's another aspect of it. In in addition to remaining faithful, they did not deny his name. They were true to his name. Now that thing, that, that what we just talked about there, the the name of Jesus and what that name means. That's something I've actually been studying quite a bit recently because um, at, through my studies and through uh, talking with other Bible teachers who I respect, I've come to understand that the name of Jesus, the name of God of Jehovah, means a, a lot more than what we think about just, you know, the, just the physical name of Jesus, the physical name of God of Jehovah. That is it's a representation of who and what they are, of their true mission and their message. And when we become Christians, we not, we, we, we not only do we give our lives over to Christ, we give our entire identity over to Christ and we're no longer promoting our name, we're promoting his name. And that the idea of name is really important. I mean, we talked about that quite a bit in the last episode on Sardis and how, you know, they had a name that they lived, but they are dead. So names are really important in the Bible, not just for nomenclature to know who you are, but also what you represent and In order to better understand that i want to give an example a story of someone who or a situation where an organization was doing the opposite they were nominally christian but instead of putting the name of god first they were putting their own name first so this situation happened with a friend of mine and again this organization i'm going to keep both of their names out of it because you know again i'm going to hide the names to protect the innocent and so I have a, a, this friend of mine, he has a ministry that is just amazing. It's It's been life changing for my friend and for all the people who, who my friend has helped. He's just helped many, many, many people um, improve who they are in Christ. And again, it's just been a fantastic, impactful ministry, small ministry, not about making a lot of money. It's just really about helping people. And what my friend was doing was becoming so impactful, and so popular. That he decided to, you know, kind of, you know, get a, a business name or a rather an organizational name because again, it was a not-for-profit, and so he came up with a name for his organization and they filed paperwork in order to, you know, to give this proper name to the organization. And off they went, but as it turned out, there was this other big ministry. I mean, huge worldwide. If I told you the name of this ministry, you would, and, and of the person who heads up this ministry, you'd know it instantly. He, this person is a very, very popular. Uh, person in a Christian circles, and he has a very popular ministry. Well, it turns out the name that my friend came up with for his ministry was very, very similar to the name that one of the divisions of this uh, big name Christian had as part of his organization. Again, it was not his main organization's name. It was just a name of one of his many, many divisions. And so this person, instead of coming to my friend and trying to work something out and saying, you know, hey, you know, we have this similar name. What can we do about it? This Big time minister had his legal team again contact my friend and threaten a lawsuit against my friend for using this name that they had a copyright on. Again, instead of being doing things in a Christian way, or in a fellowshipping way, and you know, showing the kindness and mercy we're supposed to show to our brothers in Christ, this big time minister, this big time Christian guy, his first motivation was to protect his name and say, Hey, you know, you can't use this name you came up with for your organization because it's uh, similar to mine. And of course, this organization is a you know, multimillion dollar organization. They can afford big time lawyers and all this kind of stuff. And my friend could not. And my friend's defense was, hey, you know, our ministries are not similar. So no one will confuse us because, again, that's what the, the law states that you could, two companies, organizations can have similar names or even the same name as long as a reasonable person would not uh, confuse the two. And there's no way you confuse this big time minister's organization with my friend's organization. In fact, they went to legal mediation, you know, which is something you do before you actually go to court and have a big trial. And the legal mediator in the courts agreed with my friend and said, look, you know, why don't you guys work something out? Because these these two organizations are not similar. No one will mistake them for each other. So just come up with an amicable way to to work things out. But this big time minister said, no way. Um, we are, we are going to hold up this name. This is ours. And if you try to do it, we will sue you into the ground. We have millions of dollars. We have more lawyers than you. And we will tie this thing up in court forever. And we will drain all of your resources. When you try to hire your lawyers, we'll outlast you and we will keep our name. So, of course, my friend who could not you know, afford to battle this big time minister legally just kind of let it go and change his name. But the point was that this minister was didn't even. Look at my friend's ministry. He didn't even see how his ministry, his, my friend's ministry, was helping people. All he cared about was his name. The only thing he cared about was the fact that he wanted to promote his name. Never mind the wonderful work that God was doing with my friend's organization. This big-time minister only cared about his name. He put his name above the name of God. He disobeyed the commission that Jesus gave uh, Christians to love one another in order to protect his name. And interestingly, this big-time minister. Right, not too long after this situation with my friend happened, and you know my friend gave up the name, this minister got really sick suddenly and died not too long ago. So I don't know if knowing that may, you may be able to figure out who this person is. And again, I can't say that this is directly because of what this minister did, his his death. But it wouldn't surprise me if it was because you were supposed to promote the name of God, not your own name. So that's just a, an example there. So let's move on. I want to get to the prophetic level because that's what is is really going to be fascinating. Um, it has been for the last few episodes. So according to the prophetic view, these seven churches, these seven letters, these seven churches in the order in which they were written, lay out all of church history in advance from the apostolic age at Ephesus to the persecuted age of the second and third century to the compromising church of the medieval times to the Roman Church of the of the uh, Middle Ages, to the Reformation Church, which is Sardis, which we discovered, we talked about last week. So, what is the next church? What is what I mean, what is the next church age that Philadelphia represents? Well, let's look at what happens, what's been happening with the last two churches. You had the Roman Church, which is the Church founded by the mystics, and which where mystics basically slapped their mysticism onto the Christianity. or, or actually slapped Christian names onto their mystic pagan gods and began to rule the church and the world for about a thousand years. But unfortunately for them, their power started to wane because, again, as with all mystics, their entire power base is wrapped up in them being able to keep information from other people and hoard it for themselves. And that was fine when people were uneducated. However, around the time of the Renaissance, you had the movable print press by Gutenberg, and he published the Gutenberg Bible, in, in English, actually, I think it was in German. Actually, excuse me. But what it showed is that you could print the Bible now in any language you want quickly. So the Bible was not just in Latin, this dead language. It could be printed in the language of anyone in that Catholicism was ruling over, and they could now regular people could now read the Bible and see that what the Bible said was totally in opposition to Catholic doctrine. So their their influence started to wane, and at the same time, of course, the Reformation with uh, Martin Luther and John Calvin was starting up, and so they, they were fighting each other, they were literally and, and, and theologically going to war. So you had the pagan church in war with the dead church, which we talked about last week. So two gargantuan entities that neither of whom were really doing God's work, basically dominating the Christian faith or the so-called Christian faith. But while this was happening, you start there start to be a small stirring in Western Europe. You started there started to be some people who saw the error of both the Catholic Church and the dead Protestant Church. These people decided that they wanted to go back to the true mission and message of Jesus, to be a true faithful church, to to pursue the actual name, the mission, message and representation of Jesus and led by men like. James Davenport and Jonathan Edwards and Gilbert Tennant and George Whitfield and Wilberforce, these great preachers started a movement which became known as the Great Awakening, literally waking that dead church at Sardis and filling the people who wanted to hear it with again the true mission and message of Jesus which is a message of life, life, salvation, his blood, reward, and the overall passion of, of Christ. These, these revivals, these Great Awakenings abandoned the conceit cathedral, cathedrals and sterile sanctuaries of the previous churches. The Great Awakening flourished in tents and barns, engaging every segment of society. Theology was brought to the masses without regard to education, profession, or class. The message of the Great Awakenings was repentance, which is repair, which leads to life. It was growth through biblical doctrine and living out God's righteousness in their life. It was sanctification led by grace. Basically, it's everything Jesus asked the church in the New Testament to get to do. And, hey, it only took them 2000 years to finally get it right. So then the uh, church at Philadelphia represents prophetically the kingdom, the the kingdom, the church age after the Reformation, which we call the age of the Great Awakening and the missionaries, the missionary church of the 18th and 19th centuries. So there were at least three of these so-called Great Awakenings during the 18th and 19th century and their impact reverberated throughout the West and beyond. Now, from a theological standpoint, the grassroots structure encouraged Christians to become active participants in their faith, instead of just, instead of just relying solely on a church leader or a, a so-called pastor to be their conduit to God. It reflected the apostolic era of, of Ephesus more than any other time of history. In history, except unlike Ephesus, which focused solely on doctrine to the, at the deficit of love, The Philadelphian church got doctrine right, but they also had love. They had charity. They gave. Socially, these revivals led to the abolition of chattel slavery in Great Britain under uh, Wilberforce and here in the the United States. And the missionary movements, they spread the gospel and improved living conditions throughout the world, everywhere the missionaries went. And these missionaries came, again, from Western Europe, from the United States. They traveled all over the world to uh, the to, um, Asia to Southeast Asia to India to Africa and wherever they went they brought um, improved living conditions they brought uh, industry they brought farming they just basically took a lot of these uh, countries that did not have the technological advancements and of course we're speaking relatively speaking as far as modern uh, techniques for purifying water and modern farming and modern healthcare modern you know as, as far as the nineteenth and eighteenth nineteenth and centuries. Centuries are concerned They brought all of that To these places Where they, they Witnessed for Jesus And they improved the lives Of all of these people And Additionally That That, that Christian work ethic um, brought Spawned individual liberty That led to an explosion Of ingenuity and prosperity And a prevailing worldview That advocated Honesty Integrity And justice In legal and social relationships Again following what the Bible says following what Jesus said. And importantly, the worldview of the Great Awakening were highly influential in the founding of this country, of America, which, despite our current educational indoctrination to the contrary, America was founded and established by brilliant and devout followers of Christ. Now, again, I'm not saying that every one of our founding fathers was a devout Christian. Some of them were deists, some of them were non-believers, that's fine. But by and large, the people who crafted it our constitution our bill of rights the declaration of independence were christian they were if you would look if you look into the library of congress you will find hundreds of prayers entered into the congressional record during this time these people were devoutly christians many of them were now granted the constitution doesn't mention god because it's not a religious document is it is a, a governmental document but the impetus behind it the the social governmental and, uh, and cultural ideas behind it are firmly rooted in Judeo-Christianity. And you, you can't deny that unless you're just intentionally being obtuse about it, which unfortunately many, many of our secular educators are. And, of course, America early on became a beacon for freedom and liberty, liberty and prosperity for over 100 years after its founding. Now, the importance of this liberty, which is, again, based on our liberty in Christ, the importance of this liberty on, on a governmental level cannot be understated. And and it contrasts sharply with the structure and purpose of all previous human governments, every human government. And by the way, I I do a a series um, on the on on the blog and I do a series of podcasts on what human government is all about. And human government outside of Judeo-Christianity, human government is based on suppression of uniqueness. Every previous government had a some type of king or monarch or some type of central ruler where only the elite ruled and everyone else, the vast majority, 99% of people were on a lower level and they could never attain any type of personal freedom. And, you know, again, Kings, Queens, Dukes, Earls, Popes, Caesars, magistrates, Pharaohs, you name it. There were always a few people on top. Everyone else was underneath. And the purpose of human government is to suppress uniqueness so that only the very few in power have freedom and everyone else just serves the rest. America changed that around. And again, based on these Christian values, America was the first country in the history of the world to say that a man, a human being, men and women, are free and sovereign by nature, by birth. That when you are born, as our, our as our Bill of Rights says, as our founding documents say, we are endowed by our creator with certain inalienable rights. Life, liberty, and a pursuit of happiness. Endowed by our creator. Meaning that Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness is not something that is endowed upon human beings by a king or a monarch or a dictator or a Caesar or a pharaoh or any other type of ruler. We have it by birth from our creator. Every human being is a sovereign entity. We are all kings and queens of our own area, of our own lives by birth. America is the first country that ever said that. Now, many countries after that have a, has a, have adopted American style freedom. However, no matter what. Bad things America has done, and again, this country isn't perfect. No country is no nothing ever created by man will ever be perfect. However, I will always be proud of America, and I will always be proud to be an American because I have nationality in a country, the first country that ever said that human beings are free and sovereign individuals simply based on our birth. We are endowed by our Creator with inalienable rights, and I think that's beautiful and it's brilliant and. If we had stuck to that, we'd be a much better country in a much better world. But I digress. Our liberty in Christ, our uniqueness through Christ, that liberty it not only encourages us to be unique, liberty in Christ. Not only does Jesus want us to be unique, but in order to grow in Christ and to grow as a Christian community, we have to be unique it, Growing as a church body, it relies on uniqueness of us all working together as unique entities, unique cells in the same body of Christ. And again, that's the liberty that America was founded on. So all that sounds great, doesn't it? I mean, everything the Philadelphia Church did, everything that was done with the missions and with the Great Awakenings and so forth and so on, they sound great. So then if Philadelphia, if this church was so great, if this age was so great, then why are we still here? I mean, why didn't Jesus say, hey, you know, I got my bride. Let me call her home. Well, the situation I just described definitely begs that question. Again, if the purpose of of, of the church is to, again, to give uh, Jesus that that bride, why didn't he come and claim her? Well, there are a couple of reasons. First, as I mentioned previously, the last four churches Jesus sent letters to uh, uh, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea w- will all exist when he when he returns. Every one of these uh, four, last four churches have explicit promises about the end times. That means that when Jesus returns, all four will be there, meaning that even in the midst of the revivals of the great awakenings, the dead church, the mystic driven, idolatrous church, the pagan church will still be going strong. And so will the church after this, Laodicea, which we'll talk about later, which is the worst of them all. So how could Jesus return for his bride under these conditions? Actually, we'll, we'll talk about that um, in, in a few posts from now. We, we talk about the end of the church age. So that was one reason, because you know all those churches are still there, so the church isn't pure. Secondly, these revivals, these great awakenings, were never sustainable. The reason that there were multiple great awakenings, and there were at least three um, there was the, the great awakenings of, of the, the 1700s, there's another one in the 1700s, which founded America, there was the 1800s, which was around the time of this, right before the Civil War, and then there was nominally one in the early 19th, uh, uh, 20th century. And there's there's a talk that there was a fourth great awakening during the 1970s, a so-called Jesus movement. But I, I question whether that was a real great awakening. And we'll talk about that when we get to the my uh, my video on the end of the church age. But the reason we so multiple great awakenings was because Christians could never fully uphold the righteousness they initially embraced. Why? Because it's difficult and it's not in our nature to sustain difficult endeavors. We prefer comfort. That's who we human beings are. We like comfort. And although the awakenings led to freedom, liberty, and prosperity, over time, the fire of the revivals would fade as Christians migrated back towards the comfort of religion and the self-reliance that comes from our material comforts. Again, every time people became free in Christ, we had liberty. Liberty would lead to prosperity. Prosperity would lead to abundance, but then the abundance would lead to comfort, and then apathy, and that apathy would lead us right back you know, where we started from. We'd have to be another great awakening to reawaken us from the, the slumber of our, again, of our prosperity and complacency. And, and this actually coincides with the warning Jesus gave, gave to Philadelphia to hold on to what they have so that no one takes their crown. And as I mentioned before, the crown linguistically is the reward for performance and rewards are tied to righteousness. If the church did not, does not hold on to the righteousness of these revivals, they might lose their reward in heaven, not to mention the social and material liberties, rewards of liberty on earth. And the America of today is in the, is an example of that. Today's America sadly bears very little resemblance to the America founded in the shadows of the Great Awakening. Our liberties have been eroded because, as I said, there's that that cycle of and it is a classic cycle. I will put it on the screen of, of we, how we go from uh, bondage to courage, courage to to revolution to revival, to um, liberty, liberty to a uh, prosperity, prosperity to abundance, abundance to complacency, complacency to apathy, um, and apathy and just we go right back into bondage. And you can where is America right now? Well, we have we have the abundance, and we're obviously very complacent to the point where apathetic, which means we are right on the cusp of giving up all of our liberties to go right back into bondage, and we're welcoming that bondage to government. I mean, how many times? you turn on the TV and hear certain people saying that oh, the government owes us this. The government should pay for our health care. The government should pay for ours, our education. The government should pay for this that, and the other. Well, where do you think the government gets their money from? There is no magic government money tree that, that politicians pick dollar bills off of. The money that the government gets comes from us, from the taxpayer. So whenever you hear someone say, oh, well, the government should pay for my health care, just take off the word government and just write your name there because it, Basically, people are saying that you should pay for my education, you should pay for my medical care, you should pay for my car and my house and all this stuff because the government gets the money from us. So basically, the government is taking money from one group of people and giving it to another group of people. And that's called theft, folks. When someone takes something from you and gives it to someone else against your will, that is theft. And we live in a country right now where there is mostly theft going on. We're not voluntarily giving to the government. We give to the government under threat of jail time and punishment from the IRS. So and I'm sorry, I'm getting on a rant here. My point is that we're we're voluntarily going back into the bondage where the instead of being independent and prosperous on our own, we are relying on the, the another entity for our sustenance and for our provision. And whoever you rely on for your provision is your master and you are their slave. When you lived with your parents, you couldn't do anything you wanted because the parents were the ones who paid the bill. They kept a roof over your head. They kept food in your mouth. So you knew that if you if you ever left your parents house, you'd be on your own. But once you you know if you couldn't take care of yourself, you were you know you're out of luck. But if well once we left our parents' house and went to college and got a job, we were independent. We don't need we didn't need anyone to take care of us. But when we go under the, the yoke of the government for our provision, then the government is our master. We are no longer independent. We, are no, we no longer have liberty. We now have bondage, and that's where we're headed as a country. So let's wrap it up. So as with the last four churches, Jesus made Philadelphia a promise regarding his return and his coming apocalyptic, apocalyptic judgments, which, which we talked about earlier. And again, for those in Philadelphia who, perse- who persevere in righteousness, it's a spectacular promise. He tells us that tells the Philadelphia church that he will keep them from the time of trouble, from that tribulation that's coming upon the world. And as I said before, that, that uh, word uh, translated from is the Greek word ek, which means physically separated from. The Philadelphian church is promised to be taken from the earth and kept from the tribulation. And again, we'll talk about that in detail uh, a few posts from now when we get to uh, chapter four and the rapture. All right, so that's it for the Philadelphian church but here's the good news for the church from a historical standpoint as i said philadelphia and smyrna are the only two churches about which jesus had nothing negative to say and apparently the philadelphians stayed faithful because philadelphia like smyrna still exists today smyrna is called Izmir, and the area of philadelphia in turkey is still around today and they're still a small farming community they are still known for making grapes and raisins they're still there so the philadelphian church endured all the way up until this age, as did the, the area of Smyrna, because these two areas were the ones about who were commendable and they obeyed Jesus and they stayed faithful. And that's just pretty amazing. So Philadelphia is the type of church that we should all aspire to be. We should all aspire to be that faithful church that lifts up the name of Jesus over our own name so that Jesus will propose to us so that we will be the true bride of Christ. Okay. So that's that. Now the next church is unfortunately the worst of them all, the, the church of Laodicea. And we're going to get to that, um, in, in a couple of episodes from now, but in the next episode, as I said earlier, I want to spend some time on these people who are referred to twice in the, the seven letters, the people who are, say they are Jews, but are not, are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. They're talked about in the church of Smyrna. They're talked about here at the church of the passage about the church at Philadelphia. Who are these folks? We talked about them historically in Smyrna. I believe they're the Edomites, the descendants of Esau. But who are they prophetically? In the next episode, we will talk about who these Jews who are who say they are Jews, but are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. We will look at who they might be, might be, I emphasize that prophetically into this very age. It's going to be a very controversial post. I'm going to, I'm going to step very lightly. I'm, just, I'm not going to tell you who I think these people are. I'm just going to give you, I'm just going to be contrastive and give you some, most of the options of who they could be. I'll eliminate some of the ones that they obviously pretty much aren't or can't be. And the ones that actually do fit all the criteria, I'm just going to put them out there and you can decide for yourself. Again, very controversial stuff. I am honestly not sure of the answer, but I want to give you as much information as I can. And then you make the call yourself. All right. So thank you for listening. I appreciate it. Thank you for watching. Uh, Please be sure to subscribe to Faith by Reason on YouTube. Hit the subscribe button. Hit the notification button. Go to faithbyreason.net. Please subscribe there. Put your email in, the, in, that, in that area um, on the right navigation and you will uh, be notified when new videos go up. I will talk to you next week when we look at the synagogue of Satan.